Good evening and welcome to the July 2022 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Last month, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the foundational civil rights case of Roe v. Wade, now saying that the U.S. Constitution does not guarantee a woman's right to choose an abortion. Now, while the impact of this decision is certainly devastating just on its own, it represents, for the first time, that the Supreme Court has taken away a right previously granted by the court. The arguments used to support this decision could certainly be applied to other civil rights, and LGBTQ activists are rightly concerned about things like marriage equality or even the right to consensual sexual acts between consenting adults. LGBT civil rights have come a long way in the last 50 years and now feel threatened. Tonight we take a look back at one of the pivotal decisions that became a foundation for change. But it wasn't the U.S. Supreme Court this time. It was the 1973 American Psychiatric Association decision to remove homosexuality from the list of mental illnesses. This decision likely had great influence, even though on the Supreme Court. Tonight, we'll talk with Dr. Jack Drescher. He's a gay man and a longtime practicing psychiatrist. Among the many other titles he has, he's the past president of the Group for the Advancement of Psychiatry. He lived through this time and will share his own personal story and talk more about the implications on the future next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, July 24th, 2022. This is Greg Morali with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of July 24th, 2022. A federal judge has temporarily blocked protections for transgender students that President Joe Biden enacted with an executive order in a case brought by attorneys generals of 20 different states suing for the power to discriminate against transgender students. Judge Charles Atchley of the Eastern District of Tennessee, who was appointed by Donald Trump, issued a temporary injunction against the 2021 executive order saying that it directly interferes with and threatens the plaintiff's state's ability to continue enforcing their own state laws. At issue is Title IX, a federal law that bans discrimination on the basis of sex in education. President Biden's executive order said that the law also bans anti-LGBTQ discrimination in schools that receive federal funding because it's impossible to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity without taking sex into account. The order was based on a similar reasoning used by the U.S. Supreme Court in its 2020 Bostock v. Clayton County ruling, which said that anti-LGBTQ job discrimination violates the federal ban on sex-based discrimination. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the Department of Education issued guidance to comply with the order. The red state's attorney generals led by Tennessee sued last August saying that the Bostock ruling only applies to job discrimination. Their complaint repeatedly refers to transgender girls and women as, quote, biological men, end quote, and says that states should be allowed to discriminate against transgender students when it comes to sports teams and facilities like restrooms, forcing transgender girls to use boys' restrooms. And 16 Democrats and one Republican senator have introduced the Respect for Marriage Act. This is a bill that would enshrine same-sex marriage rights into law. The bill could get a House vote as early as this next week, but it's unclear if it will attract the 10 Republican votes needed to pass in the Senate. The bill was created in response to conservative Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's statement in the recent Dobbs case overturning abortion rights and his wish to overturn the Obergefell versus Hodges decision. That happened back in 2015, and that's the one that provided legalized same-sex marriage nationwide. 
The Respect for Marriage Act would officially repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, passed in 1996. That was the law that forbid the federal government from legally recognizing same-sex marriages. In its place, the act would require the federal and state government to recognize same-sex marriages as long as they occurred in a state that also affirms them. If any state refuses to recognize such marriages, the act says the spouse can sue. The bill was announced last Monday by the House Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler, Senator Dianne Feinstein, and Congressional LGBTQ Equality Caucus Chairman David Cicilline. Senator Susan Collins, a Republican, also co-sponsored the bill, but was the only Republican to do so. This fact highlights the difficulty the bill's sponsors will have in attracting Republican votes in the evenly divided Senate. In order to become law, 10 Republican senators would need to vote in favor of advancing the bill to overcome a guaranteed filibuster. However, mainstream Republicans have begun equating public recognition of LGBTQ people with, quote, grooming children for pedophilia, making such a bill unsavory to Republicans with the November 2022 midterm elections coming up. The Respect for Marriage Act will protect same-sex and interracial marriages from any radical or bigoted decision that might come from the extremely conservative Supreme Court. And in a related story here in California, the LGBTQ Legislative Caucus and Equality California are proposing a proposition for the November 2024 ballot that would permanently repeal Proposition 8. That was the voter initiative that changed California's state constitution to define marriage as being only between one man and one woman. Enforcement of Proposition 8, of course, is currently being prevented by a federal court order. The new proposed proposition would repeal Proposition 8 and prevent a future bad decision by the U.S. Supreme Court from jeopardizing marriage equality here in California. And here locally, the LGBT Studies program at Napa Valley College is currently registering all students for the Introduction to LGBT Studies class beginning this fall. This fully online class begins on August 29th and requires no class meetings on campus. It's the entry-level course for the LGBT Studies degree and all three certificate options. You can learn more and register at napavalley.edu. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Prior to 1973, being gay was a felony crime in every state. It was also considered a mental illness, for which one could be institutionalized for treatment. The classification of homosexuality as a mental illness justified keeping consensual sexual acts between adults of the same gender a crime, a reason for being fired from a job, and certainly caused to prevent any granting of civil rights and protections for LGBTQ people. The decriminalization of consensual sex between two adults of the same gender, the granting of the right to marry someone of the same gender, and many more civil rights came following a 1973 decision by the American Psychiatric Association to remove homosexuality from the list of mental illnesses, thus normalizing being gay or lesbian. Dr. Jack Drescher is an expert on the history of this decision, as well as being an openly gay man and a practicing psychiatrist. He is also a past president of the Group for the Advancement of Psychiatry and is here now to share his personal story and the history of that famous 1973 decision. Dr. Drescher, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, it's a treat to talk with you and to learn more about the history of what I think was really a foundational decision that changed everything for LGBT civil rights. 
But before we get into those details, uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the American Psychiatric Association, what exactly is it and what function does it provide? The American Psychiatric Association is a not-for-profit organization. It is a membership organization. It's been around since the 19th century. I don't remember what year it was established. Uh, It represents, uh, it's basically the organization that represents organized psychiatry in the United States. At the present moment, I think we have 38,000 members. uh, And the goal is to, you know, to advocate for our patients, to advocate for our members, and to advocate for our profession. Awesome. And it does have a, a fairly significant influence on really what our modern culture considers to be normal and, and not normal. Uh, a lot of that, I think, is grounded in the publication, the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, the DSM, which I'm sure our listeners have kind of heard about. But what exactly is that and what does it prescribe? One of the things that the, uh, the APA does is that it does uh, publish the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. The first version uh, was published in 1952, which we call the DSM-1. And the most recent version came out this year. It's called the DSM-5-TR or the DSM-5 Text Revision. And the DSM in its current form contains uh, a list of all the kinds of diagnoses that psychiatrists and other mental health professionals might treat. And it provides uh, also descriptions of of the different disorders that it it, uh, includes in the manual. And so the treatments, are those simply guidelines and recommendations for psychiatrists? Or is that really the sort of the gold standard of care? Actually, the DSM does not does not uh, prescribe any kind of treatment at all. Oh, okay. it just, it, the DSM has never prescribed treatments. It, it basically is a way for psychiatrists to communicate with each other and, and, and today, of course, with insurance companies, although DSM codes are not being used by insurance companies anymore in recent years. But it was a way to say, basically, this is why the person uh, was treated, you know, what they were treated for. It doesn't say what the treatment is. It only says these are the diagnoses. Treatments uh, don't enter into the DSM at all. Got it. Got it. Well, you know, obviously there are people behind all of this, uh, and you have a personal journey and story of your own. Uh, so talk about what drew you into psychiatry. And when this decision was made in 1973, how old were you at the time? 1973, I would have been 22 years old. 22. Well, tell us. Tell us about your journey uh, and what led you into psychiatry. I did not grow up wanting to be a psychiatrist. I uh, did not uh, know any psychiatrist. Nobody in my family had ever seen a psychiatrist at the time. I, I start, I st- actually, in 1973, I started my medical training in Italy, Mm. Uh, there were, I went to uh, University of Padua in Italy. Uh, Italian students go to medical school out of high school. It's a six-year program, but American students still have to go through the six-year program, which usually sometimes takes more than six years. So I was in Italy for five years, uh, still not wanting to be a psychiatrist, but I did want to come back to the States. So I was able to transfer back to the U.S. 
1978 uh, for the last two years of medical school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And that's where I had my first exposure to psychiatry. I was uh, in the, what, what constituted the third year of medical school in, in Michigan. And I did my rotation, my, you have a mandatory rotation in psychiatry. I did my rotation in psychiatry at the Ann Arbor VA. Uh, I worked with a number of people. I had one patient in particular who was a guy my own age, who was a Vietnam veteran with what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder, but did not exist in the DSM yet in 1977. Uh, I'm sorry, 1978. And, you know, I had a, you know, I found I enjoyed working with people. And, uh, and I think what drew me to psychiatry is the University of Michigan is a tertiary care center a lot of the work is seeing patients on medical units, for example, who who, who cannot be fixed, uh, treated at their local hospitals because they have more complicated illnesses. So a lot of the work was mostly running down lab tests and, and things like that or doing lab tests. And I really found myself enjoying the time spent with patients. And that made psychiatry interesting to me because that's really what we do in psychiatry when we are psychotherapists is we mostly spend time with patients. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of what led to my decision to become a psychiatrist because I thought, you know, I think I can be good at that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you thought about this, uh, you know, what was it like looking at it through the lens of a gay man coming into a profession that for so long had condemned, I don't know that condemns the right word, but had had labeled being gay as a disorder. Stigmatized, yes, of course. Well, I, I well, one of the advantages of being young is you, don't have, you have no clues at what's actually going on in the wider world. So I had no idea about any of this because it never came up in my psychiatry rotation, my four weeks on psychiatry. It never came up in any of my uh, electives. I did a uh, psychiatry elective in uh, the Day Hospital of St. Vincent's in New York City, where I eventually went and did my internship. Uh, so I only knew that homosexuality had been taken out of the DSM. So I didn't know if it was an issue or not until, of course, I, I applied for my uh, internships in New York City. I, just, I, I grew up in New York and I wanted to return to New York after being away in Italy and Michigan. And so I applied only to programs in, in Manhattan. And one of the programs, the uh, the uh, without my knowing what was going on, uh, and you need to understand that at that time, people who were applying for psychiatric internships were asked all kinds of inappropriate questions, which would be illegal today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't illegal back in 1979, 1980. And so the first question my interviewer at this very prominent uh, uh, training program said, well, tell me about your intimate life. So I said, well, I'm gay. And I looked and he looked like I hit him between the eyes with a slingshot. <laughs> I mean, was, I don't think anybody ever said that to him, you know, who, you know, who wasn't a patient, you know. And so the interview. So the first question he asked me was, how long has your longest relationship lasted? And so I knew I'd answered the question incorrectly because he was already pathologizing me in my relationships. And I think the interview went downhill from there. And I did not uh, put there that program on my list of but we have something called the match. So I did not match them as a potential program to go to. Of course, the irony is like 25 years later, I'm giving grand rounds to the entire department there. But, you know, back then it was a very different time. Right. Well, and what you're describing sounds very much like my experience uh, entering law enforcement. That's where I spent the bulk of my uh, career. 
and started in 1978, actually, in high school. And, of course, at that time, uh, boy, law enforcement agencies weren't hiring anybody, except maybe for, for San Francisco, maybe New York. No one was being considered if you were gay. And the questions that you were asked were the same kinds of questions that the psychological interview included asking at the time. Uh, and so you had a choice, either to be honest and be excluded or lie about who you are. Uh, which exactly. Comes... And, uh, yes, and I had decided at that point that I wasn't going to hide or lie. Yeah, good for you. Very courageous. You had a lot more courage than I did because I kept it hidden for well beyond that time because I wanted the job. And I knew I wouldn't get it if I was if I was honest. Uh, you mentioned that the first DSM was published in 1952. So how exactly did homosexuality get listed? What was the process? And what was maybe the motivation, if you know that, for listing it? Well, that's a good question. I, in some ways, I think, you know, since the 19th century, many psychiatrists had been treating homosexuality as if it were a mental disorder. And so how I, I actually don't really know the details of how the DSM-1 was put together. I mean, that's a very good question. Uh, but in, in many ways, people who are historians in this area talk about how the DSM reflected the value systems of the culture in which it uh, was created. So many, many things which we might not think of as, as illnesses you know, were, could be listed in the DSM as well. Yeah, interesting. It, it, but it did have a lot of implications for gay people, and certainly the 50s were not a great time. It was a time when the pressure culturally from the government was intensifying. So when that was published, you know, what impact did it have uh, in your view? Well, well I, its publication then simply reflected the values of the time. For example... We know, and historians have written about this, Alan Baruby, I think, has written about the issue of gays in the military during World War II, that the United States came up with a system of, of, of excluding openly gay men from, from military service during World War II. So this had been already going on. And by the 1950s, when the DSM came on, we were already you know, in the McCarthy era, where in addition to the Red Scare, we have what was called by some a Lavender Scare. There was uh, uh, the, the, gover the government had decided that <clears throat> homosexuals formed a menace to national security because they could be blackmailed, even though the reason they could be blackmailed is because you were going to make them lose their jobs if they were found out to be gay. So it was kind of circular reasoning. But that was how people reasoned it. And so the DSM simply reflected the prejudices of the society at large and that and reinforced them. You could, for example, you know, say uh, it was it was the um, law in the United States, what was then called the Immigration and Naturalization Service, listed homosexuality as one of the reasons why you couldn't emigrate to the United mm. States. You had you had to answer a question: Are you a homosexual? For example, uh, so that so that didn't really change until 1989 or 1990. Uh, so that so that so the DSM, the, the psychiatric diagnosis rationalized discrimination. Yeah, my sense is that it actually put a sort of an official label on it. Um, you know, I, I've read a lot about the differing opinions going back into the eight, late 1800s. Uh, certainly Hirschfeld had different ideas about it. 
and then there was the Kinsey study. But but when that manual was published, it was almost like those opinions were made official by the APA, and so that became sort of the standard, which then supported all of the continuation of you know the criminalization and the government's actions for for ridding people uh, out of government employment who were gay. It, it had a lot of weight. Well, yes. I mean, it, it was officially a diagnosis. This, and this was, and this is uh, why the gay activists who triggered the change in the DSM went after psychiatry because they understood mm-hmm. that the, the psychiatric manual was being used for purposes that perhaps it had never been intended to be used. Yeah. This, is, this is a problem. People use the DSM for reasons that have nothing to do with why psychiatrists might use the DSM. And so that was brought to the attention by gay activists in 1970 when they disrupted the APA meeting in San Francisco uh, in an attempt to get the psychiatrist to change the manual. Yeah. Well, I know you mentioned that the DSM didn't have any prescribed treatments, uh, but, yes. but talk about what was sort of the contemporary practice at the time in psychiatry. How was homosexuality cured? Homosexuality is nothing to be cured, so it was never cured, but it was treated in quotation marks by a variety of methods. Uh, Most commonly were talk therapies, uh, psychoanalytically oriented uh, therapies. I'm a psychoanalyst myself, so I studied that history about the psychoanalytic theorizing about homosexuality, and that if you just got to the root of why the person was homosexual, then the homosexuality would go away. That was the theory never proven, never effective. Um, uh, There were people who did uh, behavioral modifications using uh, aversive conditioning, either electric shocks or or chemicals that would make people feel uncomfortable. And with aversive conditioning, you would show a person a picture of a a naked man. If you're talking about treating a gay man, you would show them a picture of a naked man and you would give them an electric shock so that would take away the pleasure of seeing the naked man and then when you stop the shock, you would show them a picture of a naked woman, and somehow that was supposed to make them connect pleasure with uh, women as opposed mm-hmm. to men. You know, and of course, you know, by the, in the 1970s, the people who did this, you know, they repudiated their own findings. So it's pretty, did, pretty didn't work. Yeah, pretty barbaric stuff. Well, well, you know, I mean, the problem, of course, is that the patients were often voluntary. Sometimes the patients weren't, but often the patients were voluntary, and people would submit themselves to that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Can't imagine. Uh, so how did this change come about? Uh, 1973 was a pivotal year, a pivotal decision, but it seems like it was really a, a course of a meeting and a vote, and all of a sudden, officially in the DSM, homosexuality was now a, a normality. It was no longer listed as a disorder. How did it all, what led up to that vote? The, 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 the process that led to the removal of homosexuality from DSM was not an overnight process. Uh, there had actually been research going on in the middle of the 20th century. You had mentioned the Kinsey studies. They were a very important piece of research. There was uh, the studies by Evelyn Hooker, who was a psychologist in California, and she Uh, did a study of uh, comparing the psychological test responses of 30 gay men versus 30 straight men. She asked the people who judged the psychological responses if they could tell the difference between the gay men and and the straight men, and they could not. And it was a reproducible experiment that showed that gay men didn't have any more psychopathology than straight men, 
which the theory at the time said was not true. The theory at the time was that homosexuality was not just a sexual disturbance, it was a broad disturbance in sexual function. Uh, the Kinsey studies were influential because they, they interviewed thousands of people who were not patients. The, the psychoanalytic theory of homosexuality was based on people who came for treatment, but the sex researchers were seeing people who were not patients. So Kinsey studied, interviewed thousands of people to say, what do you do? And they discovered high rates of homosexuality in the general population in adulthood, which supported the belief at the time that if, this, if the rates are so high, how could it possibly be pathological? Mm-hmm. But the psychiatric community was not really interested in Kinsey's work because Kinsey was not a psychiatrist. And in fact, the, the psychoanalytic response in the 1950s was to say, well, he's not even a doctor. I mean, he was a doctor, but not in medicine. And so uh, Kinsey reports were not paid attention to. Hooker's work was not paid attention to. She was a psychologist. So so what what it took to bring the APA to start looking at more contemporary research that wasn't psychoanalytic in nature was uh, activism, gay rights activists. After the Stonewall riots in 1969, gay rights activists became more energized. Prior to the Stonewall riots, Gay activists were very polite. They would march in very conservative clothing. Uh, uh, they would protest outside government buildings, wearing very you know, neat men wearing suits, women wearing skirts, carrying very neatly lettered signs, give us our rights. But by 1969, after the Stonewall riot, uh, and in addition, in the United States, you had the uh, African-American civil rights movement, you had the anti-war movement, you had the women's movement. Protest against authority was becoming a little bit more radical and was becoming more uh, violent at times. So the activists, the Gay Activist Alliance, decided to disrupt the APA meeting in San Francisco. Uh, They alerted the the speakers that they were going to disrupt their meeting. They came in, they took over the microphones, they said, you have to listen to us. This did get APA's attention. So APA gave them uh, a couple of seminars or symposium, as they're called in the 1971 meeting and the 1972 meeting. Uh, and, psychi- and the activists spoke to psychiatrists directly saying the, the impact of this diagnosis on their lives. Uh, committees were meeting. There was a nomenclature committee that was run by the late Robert Spitzer, uh, who was the father of the modern DSM. The DSM-3 was the first modern DSM. And they were asked questions, you know, they were explaining to people, you know, what's the problem to review the science? And at the end of all these reviews, and then I have to tell you, you know, I've been involved in the APA for many years, uh, that it's very hard. APA is a large organization. It's a cumbersome organization. It's a, it has a lot of bureaucracy. So, but when it finally says something, it's because a lot of people weighed in. And so through the, what we would call the peer review and consensus process, it was decided that homosexuality should not be listed as a mental disorder. And it was recommended to the APA Board of Trustees in 1973 that they remove homosexuality from the DSM and they voted to do that. Uh, That vote made the front page of the New York Times. Uh, The psychoanalysts who opposed removal were not happy about it. They petitioned the APA uh, using a bylaw that was meant to petition for administrative decisions by the Board of Trustees, not scientific ones. And they uh, petitioned the APA to ask the membership what they thought. And the membership was, uh, was vote. it was a referendum. The APA had 20,000 members at the time, 10,000 voted, and 58% of the members voted to support the Board of Trustees' decision. 
But it's important to keep in mind, they weren't being asked to vote on whether or not homosexuality was an illness because most psychiatrists at that time had been trained in that model, that it was an illness. They were being asked to vote to support the Board of Trustees decision, how the APA went through its usual process of deciding something, whether that decision was being supported and that's what they voted to support. Of course, the people who asked for the vote would then, might, would then later write, well, you can't decide these things by a vote, even though they neglect to mention they were the ones who asked for the vote in the first place. But in fact, you, you, you can decide things by a vote. In 2006, the International Astronomical Union voted on whether or not Pluto is a planet. So okay. it's really important to understand that whatever the scientific facts are, they're sometimes open to interpretation and that a consensus has to be reached. And the consensus has shifted away from an illness model to a, uh, to a non-pathological model of homosexuality by 1973, 1974. Mm. Well, that vote and that decision certainly changed lives for many people for the better in this country. We're going to take a quick music break. Stay with us. Dr. Jack Drescher will be back with more right after this. When I was younger, my daddy told me I would never, never amount to nothing special. He'd come at me from every angle. He'd say, you're the last thing I wanted, the last thing I need. How am I going to answer when my friends tell me my son? Kissing boys in the street My son Was kissing boys in the street He tried to change me Say I'm embarrassing my country How could I do this to my family Do I want to grow up being lonely He'd say, we have worked for our money, we've put you in school, is this how you repay us? Do you think this is cool, my son? Stop kissing boys in the street. My son, stop kissing boys in the street.
And he's finally realized I'm not lying We sit in silence but we're smiling Because for once we are not fighting He'd say, there was no way of knowing Cause all I was taught is men only love women But now I'm not sure my son Keep kissing boys in the street My son Keep kissing boys in the street When I'm gone Keep kissing boys in the street That was Greg Holden with Boys in the Street. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News In Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. And tonight, we're talking with Dr. Jack Drescher about the 1973 decision by the American Psychiatric Association to remove homosexuality from the list of mental illnesses. So, Dr. Drescher, before the break, we were talking about the fact that the decision to remove homosexuality from the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual as a mental illness really boiled down to a vote, and it was a controversial vote. I have to imagine that there were some psychiatrists who were making a good deal of money treating people, if you will, for being gay. What role did money play in this? Do you think that it stood in the way of some people voting for really the right decision? I've, I've heard that argument made. I, you know, I would have to know what's in the minds of the people who wanted to keep it. But it's my sense that, that some, some of the people who wanted to keep homosexuality an illness fervently believed that it was. Not, mm-hmm. not simply that it was about they made a living doing it. There were some people who made a living doing that, but I, I don't know what was in their hearts, so I have no way of knowing what their motivation was. Got it. I, there's an image of one of the sessions uh, where a member of the APA, a gay man at the time, testified wearing a mask and having his voice concealed. Talk a little bit about that. Yes. So... As I mentioned previously, after the 1970 disruption of the APA meeting, the APA said, okay, we will have some scientific symposia on this issue. They had one at the 1971 meeting where four or five gay activists spoke directly to psychiatrists and said, uh, we are, um, you know, hurt by the, you know, your, your manual hurts us. And these are the ways in which your manual hurts us. So this was very eye-opening, I think, to many psychiatrists. And apparently that meeting was very successful. So the activists were invited back for the 1972 meeting as well. And they thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if we could have a, a gay psychiatrist on the panel too? But it would be very difficult to find an openly gay psychiatrist in 1972 because right. homosexuality was illegal in the state, which meant that if you were a licensed physician, you could lose your license if you came out as gay. This would be against, you know, you're not allowed to break laws when you have a doctor's license. So uh, they found someone who was willing to appear in disguise. Uh, He was referred to as Dr. H Anonymous or Dr. Homosexual Anonymous. Uh, His real name was John Fryer. Uh, He was a psychiatrist uh, who was practicing in Philadelphia. And he appeared with the activists on a panel in disguise. And he, uh, and your viewers, your listeners can um, Google Dr. Anonymous and you can see a picture of what he looks like. He's wearing a Nixon fright, a Nixon <laughs> Halloween mask, a fright wig, an oversized tuxedo, and he's using a voice disguising microphone. And what he basically said to his fellow psychiatrists is, I'm one of you, but I have to hide who I am. 
because if you knew who I was, I would lose everything. I would lose my job. No one would refer me a patient. My, my professional life would be over. And again, this was a very powerful moment. Uh, uh, and I think a lot of people uh, were, were also affected by that. There's a, um, a documentary that uh, uh, came out called Cured. It was on PBS. Yes. And I think if, you're, if your listeners haven't seen it, it it's a very interesting uh, way to tell the history of that event. Yeah, it really is. It's a, it's a great documentary. So that decision, that shift, led to a lot of things that changed the whole path of the LGBT civil rights movement. I think one of the most early shifts occurred in the decriminalization of homosexuality. Uh, but not every state followed suit. I mean, there are still states that have their statutes on the books that are not enforceable, of course, but they're, mm-hmm. they're just refusing to even remove those, even though they're not enforceable in today's world. Uh, mm-hmm. what did, you know, what's your view? How, did, how much impact did that decision have in decriminalization? Well, I think, I think the, the, the decision was part of the zeitgeist at the time. Uh, what happened in the 1960s is we had a sexual revolution in the United States. And whereas sexuality had been under the covers for a long time, nobody talked about it, the open discussions of sexuality led to open discussions of homosexuality as well. And so the, I think the diagnostic change was part of a, a change that was taking place in the culture. When people could rationally talk about sexuality then there was a reason, then, then sort of some of the fantasies and the myths about what it meant to be homosexual started to go away. I can give an example, which always strikes me and it's coming to mind. Uh, so in 1993, for example, uh, President Clinton, 20 years after the APA decision, wanted to remove the ban on gays in the military that had been put in place in World War II. And there was a lot of resistance to, the, to removing the ban uh, and that led to the don't ask, don't tell policy mm-hmm. eventually. Uh, but but in 1995, I had to go to a meeting in Washington. I had lunch with a friend's daughter who had just gotten a job as, at the Justice Department, even though she was a lesbian. And I said to her, I said, well, how come did you have to go through, you know, you're, you're gay? Did, how come didn't they do a security search? Because she said one of the after effects of the don't ask, don't tell uh, discussion was that the resistance to gays in the military ultimately boiled down to, web, to foxholes and submarines. And she said, if your job didn't involve foxholes and submarines, there's no rational reason to discriminate against hmm. gay people. So that was, so, so that I think to me is really the key here that, you know, in order to have an open conversation, the beginning of that conversation is going to be very ugly. It's going to be very nasty. I think we're seeing that with transgender rights right now. Oh, yeah. 30 years later. But the end effect of the discussion, you know, of, of first homosexuality gets removed in 73. The don't ask, don't tell discussion gets talked about for the first time 20 years later. 10 years later in 2003, Lawrence v. Texas, you know, overturned sodomy laws. And by 2015, you have gay marriages legal throughout the United States. So it takes time, you know, and I think, unfortunately, you know, for trans people who, who may not have the time, uh, it, it's going to take more time before, you know, people realize that a lot of, a lot of the concerns are completely irrational. Mm-hmm. It, 
The APA has a lot of influence, though, and that decision had a lot of influence, certainly in this country, but in changing sort of the standards and understanding of a variety of medical organizations. I'm thinking about the World Health Organization as well, which has impact worldwide. Uh, what are some of the major medical associations that change their views on homosexuality as a result of that 73 decision? Well, the American Psychological Association short, uh, shortly followed suit. There's a National Association of Social Workers that followed suit uh, shortly after the APA decision. Uh, in other countries, I think the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK, you know, has been very supportive of, of LGBT rights. Um, the World Health Organization uh, followed suit in 1990. Homosexuality, per se, was removed from the, uh, the ICD-10, the International Classifications of Diseases, the 10th edition. Uh, I was just working on the, uh, the International Classification of Diseases in the 11th edition, which came out in 2022. And in that manual, uh, all, all references to homosexuality as a mental disorder are completely removed. Well, that's great. But you're right, it does take time. Uh, I want to go back to, to transgender people for a moment and this uh, label of gender dysphoria. I understand some things have changed around that in the DSM-5. Can you share a little bit about the evolution of gender disorder, gender dysphoria, and where we are today? Yes, that's a good question. Well, so I work on the DSM-5. Uh, I also was the section editor of the chapter on gender dysphoria in the DSM-5 text revision that just came out this year. And I worked on the chapter dealing with gender, what's called gender incongruence in the World Health Organization's ICD-11. So the problem, you know, uh, what the, the I, I became involved in this subject in 2008 when I was appointed to a work group of the American Psychiatric Association on sexual and gender identity disorders that was revising the DSM-4. And people were asking uh, that the diagnosis of uh, gender identity disorder be taken out of DSM-5, the way homosexuality was removed from the, uh, the DSM, uh, I guess, how many years earlier? I can't do the math in my head at the moment. In '73, mm -hmm. so but and I, and I found that was a very interesting question. I wrote a paper. Uh, people can find it on ResearchGate for queer diagnoses, and I, and I and I tried to sort of tease out the similarities and the differences between the two diagnoses. And there were some similarities, but there were differences. And, and one of the main differences is that when you took out the di diagnosis of homosexuality from the DSM or the ICD. There was no need for any kind of diagnosis after all. If gay people had depression or anxiety or any other kind of mental health problem, they could have those diagnoses. The problem with people who, were, uh, who had gender dysphoria is that they needed a diagnosis to access care. And so the, the issue was that if you, you know, so how did you balance the issue of stigma versus action? You know, the stigma of having a diagnosis versus the problem of maintaining access to care because you need a diagnosis. Your listeners may not know this, but anytime you go see any doctor, you, your doctor has to put down a diagnosis of why you're being seen. So if, a, so if a transgender person needs hormones and they go to see a doctor, they need a diagnosis. Mm. So, we, so we decided that uh, keeping a diagnosis in the DSM-5 was the lesser of two evils and suggested that it be retained to change the name to gender dysphoria to uh, people, People were okay with that. 
the DSM, though, had a very binary way of solving the problem. There was, it was either in and out. Uh, the ICD is a little bit different. The ICD, uh, the International Classification of Diseases, contains all diagnoses. So what we were able to do with the ICD-11 was to move the diagnosis, which was called transsexualism in uh, the ICD-10, change it to something called gender incongruence, and to move that diagnosis out of the mental disorder section, which we did. It's now in a chapter called Conditions Related to Sexual Health. So if you live in a country uh, which is now using ICD-11, which started this year, ICD-11 was approved in 2019 by the World Health Organization Assembly, but the ICD-11 is only being used this year for the first time in many countries. If you live in one of those countries using ICD-11 and you have gender incongruence, it's not considered a mental disorder. The problem we have in the United States is that we're, we, we only switched to ICD-10 in 2015 after it's been around for 25 years. So it's not clear when ICD-11 will be used in the United States and the coding systems are different. So this is a, a problem with insurance companies and, uh, the, and the, and the uh, bureaucracies that have to do with medical coding. Hmm. Which is all above my, which is all above my pay grade, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But so interesting uh, that we have a, a system that, you know, sort of forces uh, people to be stigmatized because they have to have a diagnosis in order to get the care. But we're also saying that it's a normal variation of who people are, and there is a path to bringing someone peace. Uh, yeah, I, I get it. It's it's complicated. It is complicated. Tell us a little about conversion therapy. I mean, clearly, you talked earlier about you can't cure homosexuality. Uh, I think any of us who are a part of the community have a pretty good understanding about that. Um, every major medical association has said that it's a normal variation of who people are, and yet there's still this urge to try to figure out how to fix people through conversion therapy. We may always have conversion therapy. I mean, uh, there's because there is embedded in our culture and in other cultures a lot of aversion, sometimes for religious reasons, sometimes for other reasons, to the very notion of homosexuality. Uh, the Japanese, for example, don't have a religious aversion to homosexuality, but it's very difficult to be openly gay <laughs> in mm -hmm. Japan. So what's the motivation for people to continue to do this? I mean, I get why religious leaders, you know, want to offer it. But even, even individuals who are not part of a religious organization who were doing conversion therapy came out and said, hey, we admit this is, this is, th this doesn't work. Why do people continue to want to offer it? Is it just a money thing? Well, I mean, Again, I, 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 I never hypothesize about the motives of people that I actually have never met. Mm -hmm. so, so it's not, I don't, so there may be people who are doing it for financial purposes. There may be people doing it because they believe that it should be done. Uh, it's really, you know, I mean, those are the probably, you know, two motives, but I, there may be more. You know, I mean, some people just believe it's wrong and that's what they believe. And some people believe it's wrong, seek to get the kind of treatment that they hope will help them change. And, you know, if you're desperate and you're unhappy, we know that this, that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We know that it's, that, that people buy all kinds of uh, vitamins and supplements that have uh, no proven efficacy. 
the multi-billion dollar industry. So, you know, people will seek out something even if it doesn't work because they hope it will work. Mm. I guess maybe it's a difference between the people who believe the world is round and those who believe it's flat. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's one way to look at it, I guess. So I want to run a question by you. Uh, I taught an LGBT awareness class for a group of law enforcement executives recently. And I was talking about, you know, the evolution of, of science and thinking about uh, the spectrum of sexual orientation and the normalization of all of that and the same around gender. Uh, specifically, I talked about the American Psychological Association's resolution around gender identity, gender expression. And I got a really ridiculous question from an executive who clearly had some bias there, but he asked, he said, you know, if, if being gay has been normalized and being transgender has been normalized, what's going to happen when the APA declares that pedophilia and bestiality are normal? Hmm. Now, I know how I answered it. How would you have answered that ridiculous question? Well, I would like to state for the record that no one in the American Psychiatric Association is talking about normalizing pedophilia or zoophilia. I call that a slippery slope question, which sometimes I have been presented with as well. And people ask slippery slope questions in order to avoid discussing the question at hand. Rather than discussing the merits of what to do about homosexuality or gender identity, uh, they would rather sort of avoid the subject altogether. Because if and when the time comes to discuss either pedophilia or zoophilia, the merits or or the pluses and minuses will be different in those conversations, and those decisions would be made differently. So that's how I would answer a slippery slope question. It's a wish to avoid discussing the question at hand. Mm. Yeah, I my response to him was, look, it doesn't matter. We have laws in place, and those laws are passed by people that we elect, and the bottom line that any sexual act requires consent by the other person or other parties involved. And in our society, in most states, it you have to be at least 18 years old to give legal consent. So it doesn't really matter whether any entity declares that to be normal or not. The law is the law. Uh, animals can't give consent, so you don't need to worry about that either. Uh, he folded his arms and rolled his eyes, and, and then we went on. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, you know I, I talk about controversial subjects all the time, and, and I assume that the, um, that the audience that listens to my conversation can be divided into three parts, not necessarily of the same size. And there are the people who will always agree with me. There are the people who will never agree with me, like this person who folded his arms. And then there are the people in the, in the room who are there to listen to you, be, me being persuadable. So, so you know, you, you spoke to the persuadable middle. I try to talk to the persuadable middle someone doesn't want to accept something, they're always going to find a reason not to right. accept it. And, right. and, it, and from, from my perspective, yes, it would be nice in a democracy if we could have an open conversation, but it's really true. Some people's minds are made up and they're not open to conversation at all. That's very true. Very true. Uh, we've got this Equality Act that's uh, on the table at the federal level to try to put sexual orientation and gender identity really in the same regard and protections as we have for race and religion, for example. What do you think medical associations, specifically the APA, should be doing today? Or do they even have a role uh, in terms of furthering equality for LGBT people? 
Well, I belong to both the American Psychiatric Association and the American uh, Medical Association, and I know that both of those organizations, when asked, uh, weigh in either with amicus briefs uh, or either signing somebody else's brief or writing their own. So that's already happening. You know, the, the, the problem is really, it's not really that the politicians are listening to the, the to medical expertise, because uh, as we saw and as we saw during the pandemic, medical expertise can be challenged and for political reasons. So I'm not sure that it makes a difference in the long run, but you know, I can say that AMA and APA are on the right side of the issue. Yeah. And then, of course, there's a very deep intersection with this whole debate about what religious freedom is and what that means and what its influence is. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any medical right. association that's going to be able to compete with that. Well, as I said, this is, th- these are politicized issues. And so in politics, they're competing agendas. And, you know, all you can, you know, we now have gay marriage and the majority of Americans support gay marriage. Mm-hmm. And the reason they do that is because a conversation was started in 1973 with the removal of homosexuality from the DSM. And uh, that, that took a number of years to bring about social change. Uh, so I think, you know, young people, it's very hard for young people to be patient. And I understand why, you know, uh, telling people to be patient isn't always the best advice. But in reality, it takes time for social change to take place. And we're seeing the beginning, in, in, particularly in transgender rights, where people are being introduced to the very concept of transgender people in the way that they hadn't really understood it. And most people probably still don't understand it. And the, and the challenge now is to help people understand it better so that they won't be so frightened about something they don't understand. Yeah. Well, you make a very, very good point. Uh, I've said for a long time, it's it's not about a change of law that's going to change the way people behave. It's about changing hearts and minds. But that law is a foundation for that change to happen. And, you know, certainly the, the APA's decision in 1973 is the foundation for so many things, including uh, marriage equality. You're still pretty active. Uh, you've been active in this field for many, many, many years. You listed some of the things that you're doing or have done uh, what's what's happening with you right now, and where can people go to learn more about your work? This is the oh, song that was played uh, at well, his public memorial held earlier this month in the Healdsburg Town Square. It has uh, some of the activities I've done, some of the things I'm still doing. Uh, I'm very involved uh, with the Group for Advancement of Psychiatry, which is a psychiatric think tank. I was a president of that organization. We just celebrated our 75th year uh, as an organization. Um, I'm also involved in APA, uh, a committee. I just was appointed. I just left the APA committee on ethics where I was a consultant and now I've become a corresponding member of the APA's council on communications. Um, I'm, I teach in a variety of settings. Uh, thank, the night, the, the, the silver lining about zoom is I've been lecturing around the world. Uh, this Friday I'm lecturing in Japan, for example, uh, and few weeks ago in Italy. I've been in France. I've been in a lot of countries uh, during the pandemic. So I'm, you know, just trying to help people who want to learn more about the things that I've done my thinking about. Well, the work you're doing is so critically important. I'm thinking about transgender people and just the redefining of gender, the understanding of gender identity and gender expression and the normality of all of that 
What do you think are some of the next steps that need to happen there to get our society to get more comfortable? Or is it just going to take time, as you've said all along? Yeah, I think I think it's going to take time. But I, I also think it's really helpful for people who are advocating, as I try to do, is that is to, to not assume that people who don't understand you right away are your enemy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That you know that, that it's, you know just because someone doesn't understand the issues doesn't mean that there's something wrong with them. It just means they don't understand it. And so again, it's another kind of patience. It's having the patience to listen to where people are coming from, try to understand what their concerns are, and then try and offer them a reasonable way to think about the subject that doesn't make them think that they're prejudiced. And so, you know, the word transphobia, for example, and homophobia get tossed around a lot. I think they get tossed around a little bit too easily. Uh, and if you call somebody transphobic and homophobic, I can assure you they're not going to pay attention to mm-hmm. what you have to teach them. I've never found that to be a useful way to educate anybody. So that's, so I think it's more about learning. We need, if we want to advocate for people's civil rights, to find better forms of communication, in addition to other forms of activism. Sometimes communication isn't the right thing to do, but often it is. Boy, I really like what you just said. Um, it's one of the things I like to share with my students. Uh, activism is so powerful simply through education. Yes, absolutely. It's great. Uh, I will post your website on our website at outbeatnews.com. You can go to the top of the page, click show notes, and you can find all you want to know about Dr. Jack Drescher. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and sharing this history and also your current work. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, hello to everybody out in, in, in the wine country. And that brings us to the end of our hour. Tune in next week for an Outbeat Extra with Gary Carnavelli. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on 104.9 FM KRCB Radio. In the meantime, have a great week. And thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. You can't find a fighter But I see it in you So we gon' walk it out Move mountains We gon' walk it out And move mountains And I'll rise up I'll rise like the day Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCBFM Roner Park and KRCGFM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.